This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Tom Switzer and welcome to Between the Lines. Always great to have your company. Now today on the program, how do we reconcile our increasingly important trade relationship with China and our all-important security alliance with the Americans? Stay with us for that. Well, ask the average Australian a question about Donald Trump or Brexit, chances are they'll be able to answer it. But ask a question about Narendra Modi and the Indian election in May, or the Indonesian election in April, or the first time the now-banned Boeing 737 crashed, before Ethiopia, in Indonesia late last year, (laughs) the same person might struggle to answer those questions. Now, it's not that Australians don't care about their nearest neighbours. It's more that the mainstream media, in my judgment at least, underreport the region. Well, my next guest has always acknowledged the significance of our nation's role in Asia. Peter Varghese was Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade from 2012 to 2016, but his work in diplomacy began in the 1980s in Vienna. From there, he wove his way through Washington, India, Tokyo, Malaysia, among other things. He also was John Howard's Senior Advisor in the 2000s. He's currently the Chancellor at the University of Queensland. He joins me today after having received the highly regarded Weary Dunlop Asia Medal. That's for his commitment to enhancing the quality of life in the region and improving Australia-Asia relations. G'day, Peter. Hi, Tom. Nice to be back. And congratulations on your award. You said in response to receiving the Weary Dunlop Medal, quote, These are challenging times for Australia and Asia. We face, to adapt a phrase from the late Tom Wolfe, a bonfire of certainties. Optimism is the currency of diplomacy, but these days some of us still wake up optimists but go to bed pessimists. Peter, explain your argument. Well, I think my bottom line, Tom, is still more on the optimistic side, but uh, I think if you step back a little bit and look at what is happening... uh, we are now seeing a, a very different Asia, to take just one example. Uh, I think we're going to see a much more contested Asia, uh, a strategically ruptured Asia, which will need to find a new settling point. You see, the last four decades have been decades of fairly straightforward choices for Australia in Asia. Uh, we were the beneficiaries of a remarkable economic boom, beginning with China's opening up in the late 1970s. And in many ways, we were able to have our cake and eat it. And by that, I mean, we were able to enjoy economic growth while retaining strategic stability anchored in the US alliance and the US forward commitment in Asia. Uh, I think that is shifting. And the way in which it shifts and the challenges that it will present for Australia are going to be very large issues in our foreign and strategic policy. Uh, And when you add to that uh, the emergence of a much more multipolar Asia, an Asia where a number of powers are going to be simultaneously strengthening, we are going to have to navigate our way through a much more complicated environment. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that 
it's all gloom and doom. Uh, far from it. I mean, one of the messages I tried to convey in my um, acceptance speech for the Weary Dunlop Medal was that if we play our cards right, Australia can be exquisitely positioned in Asia because we bring to those relationships a number of advantages. A complicated regional terrain, and it's getting more complicated, and that is due in large part to a country you haven't mentioned yet, and that's China. You, you say in your remarks, China wants to become the predominant power in Asia, even the Indo-Pacific. To the extent that that is true, how worried should we be? Well, I think it's now clearer and clearer that that is indeed uh, China's intent to become the predominant power in Asia, if not more broadly. So at one level, you know, that is an entirely uh, legitimate aspiration in the sense that all big powers, all great powers think ambitiously about their future and their place in the world. But the issue for Australia is this. The predominant power, by definition, is the single most important shaper of the strategic culture of that region. So for China to succeed in its ambition, while it retains the characteristics of a one-party authoritarian state, would mean for Australia that the single most important shaper of our strategic culture shifts from a liberal democracy in the United States to a one-party system in China. And that is not something that uh, Australia would find a particularly comfortable outcome. So how we deal with this, how we find a way to arrive at uh, a new stable strategic equilibrium in the region, which recognises China's weight and power, but which also balances and constrains China's behaviour, I think is the big strategic challenge of our time. But is there a danger where understating China's domestic challenges? I mean, you think about the economic slowdown, I think growth rates are about 5 to 7% coming down from, you know, double-digit figures not so long ago. They've got environmental challenges, ethnic tensions. Uh, what about demographic challenges? Uh, your old boss, John Howard, is fond of saying that China will grow old before it grows rich. What about those internal challenges, Peter? Oh, you're absolutely right to point out the magnitude of China's internal challenges. And we should never forget that because uh, China's preoccupations in many ways, are going to be more domestic than international. And this is Xi Jinping's big, big conundrum. How do you institute economic reform while retaining absolute political control for the Communist Party? And in 2013, he set out a very ambitious economic reform agenda. He said he was going to put the market at the centre of the allocation of resources. Since then, I think we've seen a walking away from the reform agenda because of concerns about its political implications. And at one level, this shouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, uh, the politics of economic reform in a democracy is very hard. I don't think we should assume that just because uh, China is not a democracy that they can do this easily. Uh, but here's the, here's the rub for China. 
if it slows on economic reform, the inevitable consequence is a slowing economy. A slowing economy fundamentally challenges the compact between the party and the people, which is we, the party, will continue to deliver rising living standards and economic growth, and you, the people, will accept our monopoly. If that compact comes under serious challenge, we are dealing with a number of very unpredictable variables. And China's leadership is very rightly focused on the stability of the country. You mentioned domestic factors. Domestic factors are hugely important. China knows from its own history just how traumatic domestic instability can be. So finding a way to return to the path of economic reform uh, while hanging on to its political strategy is going to be uh, a very, very large challenge for China's leadership. Does it help when uh, a foreign minister, such as Julie Bishop, I think it was in May 2017 in Singapore, gave a big keynote address and declared that China could not really be taken seriously as a great power until it becomes a democracy? How does that play out in Beijing? Oh, well, I think in, in Beijing, uh, that wouldn't play well at all. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, there are many historical examples of great powers that aren't a democracy. In fact, the majority historically of great powers uh, have not been democracies. So uh, I don't think that direct connection between the two uh, necessarily holds up. And, you know, I mean, China is going to find its own settling point. China is going to find its own path. And others like Australia can hope that it takes a particular road, but I don't think we have, or really anyone has, the capacity to significantly influence, let alone shape China's path down a more democratic It seems road. to me uh, we've had a few hiccups in recent times, uh, the rejection of Huawei and the 5G network, uh, claims of Chinese interference in our politics uh, and even in our universities. Are you an optimist about how Canberra can uh, juggle the relationship with China over the next few years? I think it's going to get a lot more complicated and it's going to get a lot more difficult and Australia is going to have to make some fairly difficult choices along the way. This is not just an issue about how the Australia-China bilateral relationship plays out. This is also an issue about how the US-China relationship plays out. And that, in many respects, is where the bigger complications for Australia may lie. I can't envisage a future of Australia-China relations which isn't premised on engagement. But that doesn't mean engagement at any price or engagement on any terms. Uh, I think the United States is quite right to call out China, for example, on uh, trade policy issues, to call out China on intellectual property, mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. market access, uh, all of those things that are on the table in the US-China trade negotiations. But here's the thing. I mean, if, if you want the United States to remain a strong, indeed predominant power, you want it to do so through its own attributes and through lifting its game, 
not by thwarting China. And this is going to be at the nub of American strategic choices. How do you manage China's rise without going down the path of a full-blown containment policy? My guest is Peter Varghese. He's the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Office of National Assessments, and he's the Chancellor of the University of Queensland. He recently received the Distinguished Weary Dunlop Asia Medal for his commitment to enhancing the quality of life in the region and improving Australia's relations with Asia. Uh, Peter, you were also High Commissioner to India, and of course, uh, last winter, uh, you presented to the Australian Government of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull the big economic strategy blueprint for our relations with India to 2035. A few years ago, under Modi and Tony Abbott, we often heard about the idea of a free trade agreement between our two countries. It seems a lot harder to achieve. Why? Uh, well, I concluded in my report that... Uh it was probably sensible just to put that particular objective to one side <laughs> right. because I, I just didn't see the two sides finding enough common ground to get an agreement over the line. And I thought that there was a heck of a lot that we can do in the absence of an FTA. I mean, FTAs are, are good and useful things, uh, but you can have big trade relationships without one. I mean, we only did our FTA with with China in 2015 and our trade uh, between the early 1980s and, and then uh, grew at, uh, at an enormous rate. My report on India really was an attempt to get the message out, particularly to corporate Australia, that we needed to be thinking about India uh, much more seriously as a market and as an investment destination, that if you take what is already the third largest economy in the world, measured by purchasing power parity, and assume, as I have, a moderate 6 to 8% growth, and fast forward that 20 years, you're dealing with something very substantial and I've said in my report that we should set ourselves some ambitious targets over the 20-year period of, uh, uh, of the report, which was to treble our trade and to increase by a factor of 10 our outward investment into India. And one of the many benefits of giving more attention to this market is that it spreads our risk. So 40% of our exports in Australia go to just two markets. China and Japan, and you could argue two aging markets. I mean, they're very important markets. I'm not being dismissive of them. But if we want to build re resilience into our economy, we should be spreading risk. And focusing on India, I think, is one way of ensuring that we can spread our risk more effectively. Okay, and how does that play out strategically with Delhi? Because we've got this so-called uh, quad. This is the strategic relationship among the US, Japan, India, and Australia. How is that playing out? Well, my report was an economic strategy, but I did say that this is a relationship, Australia and India, that should rest on three pillars, economics, geopolitics, and people-to-people. The geopolitics, in my view, will get closer 
over time. Uh, and a large part of that is how we see the challenges in the region, and in particular, the challenges which we've just been talking about posed by China's rise. So uh, India and Japan are two countries, in my view, who are unambiguously committed to balancing China geostrategically. And they do so for different historical uh, and geopolitical reasons. So I think if the big project of our time is to find a stable balance in the region, then India, Japan, the United States and Australia are going to have a natural affinity in trying to achieve that. So I see our, our strategic relationship with India getting much closer and I think that will play into how far we go with them economically. Yeah, but some uh, sceptics might say that Indi uh, India, traditionally speaking, does not see itself as part of any kind of uh, balance of power or coalition against, in against China. Well, India certainly doesn't see itself as part of any grand alliance. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, strategic autonomy is the absolute bedrock, I think, of Indian strategic thinking. But strategic autonomy can coexist with particularly an organic balancing of China. And I think that's essentially where Indian strategic thinking is. And it's not far from where a lot of Australian strategic thinking is. My guest is Peter Varghese. We're talking about Asia. Peter, Indonesia, presidential legislative elections are just around the corner. And uh, in recent months, we all too often hear that Indonesia is becoming a more conservative country, that Islam is becoming a more central legitimating idea for state power. Are these concerns about the rise and rise of Islam in uh, Indonesia's political discourse, are they overstated? Oh, I think sometimes they can be overstated. I mean, my view is that the Indonesian election will be won or lost primarily around economic issues, uh, and in particular, the sort of aspirational politics that we're seeing now in so many parts of Asia. I mean, Modi came into power off the back of the aspirational vote. Uh, Jokowi, in his first term, uh, I think, came to office because he was able to tap into that, and he has made delivering on it a, uh, a key part of his presidency. But that said, I mean, there is uh, a trend which goes well beyond Indonesia in many Muslim-majority countries where the outward observance of Islam and the forms of its religion are becoming more prominent. And we're seeing that in Malaysia. Uh, I think we're seeing it in, in Indonesia. And let's not forget that Indonesia has a long history of political Islam. Uh, including at the edges of some of, of, of fairly militant political Islam. So while my view is that the center of gravity of Indonesian Islam is moderate and I think will likely remain moderate, it's always had to deal with uh, more radical opinion towards the edges of, of its polity. Okay. Now, in the wake of Christchurch, and this is something different, the media conventional wisdom appears to be that an entrenched racism exists in Australia, uh, that our political leaders all too often fan the flames of xenophobia, Islamophobia, and that in turn has 
encouraged white supremacists to go on shooting sprees, as we saw in Christchurch recently. Um, What's your sense of this debate in Australia? Tom, um, Australia has made a remarkable journey on race. Uh, I came to Australia as a young child in 1964 when the white Australia policy was still the official policy of the Australian government uh, and my parents with nine children in tow were given a two-year visa and that on a special exemption for distinguished Asians. Now, if you fast forward from that time to today where Australia is, in my opinion, a genuinely successful multicultural society, it is extraordinary. I mean, all of our historical baggage was premised around race and the importance of racial purity. And to make that journey in a single generation is by any measure a great story. And I would say it could not be done if the DNA of Australia was fundamentally racist. I mean, you would not be able to achieve that off the back of a fundamentally racist society. Now, does that mean that there are no voices of racism in Australia? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that our politics won't have, particularly at its fringes, voices that seek to exploit issues of race or issues of religion? I think we will continue to see that occur. But uh, I think it's a, it's a tribute in many ways to mainstream Australian politics that Australia has made that journey on race. And nevertheless, you'll all too often hear critics say, well, look at the outbreak of Hansenism in the mid to late 1990s. Look at the Cronulla riots in late 2005. Look at Christchurch. And they'll say that the rest of Asia is constantly reacting to these kind of events with incomprehension and disgust. And they'll say that they're um, constantly scrutinising us because of our conduct. How would you respond to those concerns, Peter? Oh, look, I I think there's no question that there is a time lag between how countries in Asia perceive Australia on race and what the contemporary reality of Australia on race is. I mean, I was High Commissioner in India at the peak of the problems we had with the safety of Indian students. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that the Indian media perception of Australia on issues of race was circa 1960 or 1970. There is uh, not an up-to-date appreciation of, as I said before, how far we've we've travelled on this issue. So race will always be an issue that echoes in our relations with Asia. I think it'll take quite a long time for that to wash out of our relationships in Asia. But the best way to make sure that we can achieve that is by continuing to be an effective and successful multicultural society. Peter, always great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. Peter Varghese, he's a former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Office of National Assessments. He's also the Chancellor of the University of Queensland, and he recently received the highly regarded Weary Dunlop Asia Medal for his commitment to enhancing the quality of life in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as improving Australia-Asia relations. 
You're with me, Tom Switzer, on RN. And to follow on from that discussion with Peter Varghese, this week I took part in a panel discussion. It was a La Trobe University event held in Melbourne, and the discussion was whether racism dominates the political mainstream in Australia. I just wanted to share some of that with you now. We pick up from Tim Supamasan. He's the former Race Discrimination Commissioner. So my view is very simple. I do believe that racism has entered into the Australian mainstream and it is vitally important that it is now confronted and combated. And the events, the tragic events in Christchurch only bring to attention just what can happen if we allow for forms of hate and racial speech to escalate into something much more dangerous. It is a reminder of the connection between hate speech and political violence. I would have hoped that in the aftermath of the Christchurch terror attack that we might have seen a resetting of our political debate in Australia. That we might, for example, have seen leadership in the form of a strengthening of our hate speech laws, that they may have been a new government commitment to an anti-racism strategy or initiative at the national level, that there may have been a stop to race politics as it has been practised in recent years. I don't think we've seen that reset just yet, but it's only natural for us to consider the need for such a reset as we approach a federal election very shortly. I would hope that we see something of a restoration of sanity and proportionate public debate in our national life, because if I can be frank, we haven't seen much of that in recent years, and it has contributed to the emergence of far-right extremism and to a threat to democracy, uh, as I've described in the form of racism. That was Tim Supamasan, who's just written a book called On Hate by MUP. And here's my response. Racism and xenophobia, far from defining the political mainstream, is by and large confined to the fringes of Australia's public discourse. And the reaction across the country to March 15, I would argue, is powerful proof. Indeed, the widespread outpouring of support for Christchurch's Muslim community, and indeed Muslims in the wider Australian community, has been a rebuke to those who commit violence in the name of race and to those who think Australia is irredeemably racist. It's my view this evening that for all our nation's flaws, including the appalling treatment of our Indigenous population in the past, and notwithstanding those pockets of bigotry and racism that do exist in this country, Australia, all things considered, is broadly a liberal, tolerant, multicultural society. And it's been that way for the best part of half a century, since both major political parties chipped away at the great white walls of white Australia and moved quickly to enshrine the multicultural ideal as the basis of national community. Whenever a political figure goes outside the bounds of respectability, either on race or religion, or both, 
There are multiple countering voices. As the University of Sydney historian James Curran told me this week, quote, you don't have to agree with all their arguments, but their reaction to the extremes is telling in its own right about the foundational decency and respect on which the current Australian community is built. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.